You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, uh, a little while back, Jonathan texts me, and and he says, how'd you like to preach? And uh, I want to preach. I like to preach. And it's been a while since I've gotten to, and this is my first time with, with the family here at Cities Church. And so I said, yes. So he says, it's Genesis 38. You want to take Genesis 38? And I didn't really look at what it said. Um, I, so I said, yeah, I, I just I want to preach. It's, it's, you know, I'm ready. It's my time. And then I, you know, I opened. And I knew that this story was there. I mean, I knew that it was somewhere around there. Um, and I open and I look. Open it up. I pull out my Google machine. And I text him and I said, you're crazy. And so here we are. Genesis chapter 38, he's been so supportive. Genesis chapter 38. This is an odd story. Uh, It is a sad story. It is incredibly heartbreaking. Um, And and it's just very, like, it's very difficult to put in in the context. So um, up to this point, we've seen this transition from uh, Jacob to, to Joseph as the main character. So chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sold into slavery. And then chapter 39 picks up exactly where chapter 37 uh, leaves off. And so you have this, 38, and you're just stuck. What are we, what are we doing with this? What's going on here? And it's, uh, so it's very difficult and very unnatural it's sandwiched between these two, the, kind of the, the, this point in Joseph's story. And so I think what, what would be most helpful is if we can answer two questions about the passage before we actually get into the story. So two questions we're going to get into. One is, why is this story in Genesis? Why does the writer include this when it seems so unnatural, so odd? And the second one is, why is it here instead of somewhere else in, in the passage? Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to flip it, and we're going to answer the second one, and then we'll get to the first one. So, so why is this story here in Genesis? There's a couple of thoughts. The first, this is a sort of bookend to Jacob being the, the primary character in the narrative. So there's several elements in the story that we don't get to, to, to get into that communicate that all of Jacob's wrestlings, you might remember Joe preached on the, the wrestlings with God, all of those wrestlings get uh, transitioned into his children and grandchildren. Those wrestlings get passed on to the family. And we see that here in, in this text. And the second thing, the second reason for, for why it's here uh, is because the author wants to remind us of Judah before we get to Joseph. The, the writer knows something that up to this point we don't know yet about these two brothers. And so he wants to, to kind of keep us on high alert. You know, Judah's still here. Don't forget about Judah. So that's why it's here. But why is it in Genesis at all? Why interrupt the heroism of, of Joseph? I mean, he either doesn't do, uh, he does little wrong in the next 10 chapters, or he does nothing wrong. I mean, Joseph is a type of Christ. And so why would you interrupt that uh, for Judah? And, and the first reason is because it, it contrasts the two, that you have this stark contrast between Joseph the hero and the character of Judah. And there's actually a bigger reason going on, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt on that, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. So let's move into the story. A couple of important things to know. 
this is a long time. So in this whole story, you see at least 22 years happening here in, in one text of Scripture. There's a family move, a marriage, the birth of three children, uh, a couple more children. Some of those children move into adulthood, adulthood. A lot happens here in the text. And so it's, it's about 22 years long as a story. And I'm just going to give you a brief introduction to the characters. So there's Judah, son of Jacob, fourth son, uh, and he's Leah's fourth kid. You guys remember Leah, right? So uh, he, she's the, the less pretty of, of the two wives. There's, there's Rachel, the beautiful one that Jacob loved, and then there's Leah and Judah's fourth son. Now, there's something special about Judah's name. Leah's first three kids, they're all tied to uh, her husband. He doesn't love her, and so all of, the, all of their names are connected with that. Reuben is essentially, the Lord's looked upon me um, and given me a child, and now my husband's going to love me. Simeon is the Lord heard that I'm hated by my husband, um, so he has given me a son. Levi, uh, this time my husband will love me because I've given him three children. You see, Leah is tied to the love of her husband. And then Judah comes along, the fourth child. And here's here's what they name him. Judah means, this time I will praise the Lord. Period. Now we see this transition with Leah connected with the birth of her son where she finds her her identity and her satisfaction in Yahweh, in the Lord. And so the second character is Hira. Hira is a a sleazy business partner and friend. And the third is Tamar, which is Judah's daughter-in-law. And so what we're going to do is we're going to journey through the text together. We're going to see it in several acts or scenes Uh, And then we're going to get to the end of it. I think the Lord's got a couple of things that he's going to show us through this. So scene one, or act one, is the opening. This is verse one to five. After Judah and his brothers sell Joseph into slavery, Judah leaves the family and leaves the land to go down and work amongst the Canaanites. He starts a business relationship with Hira, um, which proves to be a very negative influence. Soon he, he lusts after a Canaanite woman, he marries her, and he has uh, three sons. And there are zero descriptions given of, of the boys. Now, generally, when there's children, in the li- especially male children, in the line of Abraham, something is said about him. So, something is said about them. But there's nothing mentioned here about the sons, and nothing mentioned about his, about his wife either, which reflects kind of how the writer feels about these, about these people. Um, that there is nothing significant about them at this point, um, and it reflects poorly on them, and, and consequently, it reflects poorly on, on Judah. So he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And that transitions us into the, the conflict. Now, every good story needs some sort of central conflict, and in this text, it's, the conflict's pretty juicy. So uh, here it is in Genesis 38. This is Judah's failure to produce an heir. That's verses 6 to 11, the conflict. Judah fails uh, to produce an heir. Or or to flip it, the question, how is Judah going to produce an heir? How is the family line going to uh, continue? Now, if you've journeyed with us in Genesis, you've seen usually the conflict is who is the person going to marry? I mean, a lot of Genesis is like the bachelor in Canaan, and it's just season after season of it. Who's, are they going to marry an Israelite or someone from the line of Abraham? Are they going to marry a, a Canaanite or someone else from, from outside of the family? Um, but this time, the conflict isn't the marriage. 
It's the children. It's the heir. Judah fails to produce an heir, and it's not for lack of trying, right? So he has three boys, and he realizes the importance. You know, I want to have grandchildren. And so he says, uh, he gives Tamar to his first son, Onan. God decides, he sees Onan. Onan is a wicked man, and so God decides to kill Onan. Uh, and now, uh, so I, I apologize, I mixed the names of Ur. That was Ur. The second son is Onan. Uh, so Judah, doing the right thing, probably for the wrong motives, gives his second son, Onan, to Tamar to perform the duty of a brother-in-law, which is essentially uh, take Tamar as your wife and give her children to continue the family line. Now, at this point, Onan realizes something, that because Ur is, is dead, the firstborn is dead, the firstborn blessing passes on to him, and he wants it. So what it says in the text is he would, he would go into Tamar, but he would spill his seed. That's the Bible's words, not mine. Uh, he would spill his seed and so, the, so that Tamar would not have a child. And so he realizes, I, I want the blessing. I don't want to pass it on to Tamar's children, I want to keep it, thinking just like Judas thinking, selfishly, self-centeredly. So uh, uh, God sees this. He looks at Onan, and he determines that this is evil, and so God kills Onan. Now, at this point, uh, Judah is starting to look like a minor league call-up, right? He's 0 for 2. He's got two strikeouts. It is not looking good uh, for Judah. In fact, it's pretty embarrassing at this point. And so what I want to do is I just want to pause. And we're going to see in Judah this descent into wickedness, into ungodliness. So, so he, along with his brothers, sells Joseph into slavery. Then Judah takes the lead on lying to his father. And then after having done that, he moves away from the family down into Canaanite community, a Canaanite community. And so uh, in Genesis, if you go down uh, out of the land, you're walking off the mountain. There's, there's a geographical sense to it. Now, I live in Minnesota my whole life, so I'm not real familiar with, that, with what that feels like. But he's going down off the mountain. And in Genesis, you either go with God or you go without God down out of the promised land off the mountain. So, so God, in, in Genesis 11, he comes down from the heavenly mountain to see Babel. During a famine, Abraham goes out of the land, but God's with him as he does. There's another famine in the land later on, and God tells Isaac, don't go down because I'm not going to be with you. Then here in Genesis 38, Judah goes down, and the Lord is not with him. And then in Genesis 46, we're going to see the family moves down, but the Lord is with them. So he goes down, away from the family, down the mountain, into a Canaanite community, which is not a good thing. He makes a business partner with a sleazy man named Hira, who's a Canaanite. He marries a Canaanite woman, and he produces and raises wicked children. This is like rock bottom. It does not get worse for someone who is a part of the people of God than, than this. This is about as bad as it gets. So Judah, in all of this, is neglecting the commands of God and jeopardizing the purposes of God. Or to say it another way, Judah is failing. 
He is failing to protect and promote God's purposes by doing exactly what God has commanded him not to do. Which leads us into the third scene. Tamar realizes that the third son, Shelah, Judah is not going to give him to her. So at this point, Judah has sent her away, uh, said, go back to your father's house to live there. Communicates, you'll get Shelah, but he never actually follows up on the promise. And so Tamar concocts a plan to dupe Judah into giving her a child. So Judah's wife dies, and the time of his mourning ends, which is probably a week, maybe 10 days. And then he makes a trip, and he goes to see, goes back to work, he goes to see Hira. And, he, and what happens is Judah hears that his father-in-law is back in town. So she knows that he's not going to give him the third son. She crafts the plan, dresses up so that Judah will mistake her as a cult prostitute. And Judah, just a week after the death of his wife, comes to her and he says, thinking she's a prostitute, he comes to her and he says, um, come, let me, let me come into you not knowing that it's actually his daughter-in-law that he's talking to. And she agrees, but for payment. Or, uh, so he's, she says, what are you going to give me? He says, I'll, I'll send you a, long, a, young, a young goat. And she says, I need a promise. So here's what she asked for. She asked for his signet, his cord, and his staff, all of which are central to Judah's identity and the family identity. I mean, these are his most personal belonging. I mean, think driver's license, social security card, but that they actually matter to you. Like this, like this has been passed on to him, it's been given to him, and he leaves it with her. So he leaves his identity with her, he agrees, and the big question in all of it is why? So why is Tamar doing this? It's the same answer to the question of why this passage is in Genesis. And we're going to punt on it one more time, but we'll get there, I promise. So this is scene four. Here's the build. This is where, like, things really get exciting. Verses 20 to 23. So Judah, after all of this, he searches for his signet cord in staff. He sends Hira to retrieve them, and it's unsuccessful because they can't find Tamar because she's gone back to her father's house. And so they ask around, uh, where, was, where was the cult prostitute? And the whole city, they're like, there, was, there wasn't one, which has got to raise a lot of questions for Judah. And so he gives up. He knows that this is as embarrassing as it gets. And so he doesn't want anybody else to find out about it. And so he just lets it go, which leads us into scene five. This is the, the apex of the drama. This is the pinnacle. Three months after Judah goes into Tamar, so three, she's been pregnant for three months, and he's still in the dark on this, He's told by Hira that not only has Tamar been immoral, but she is pregnant by immorality during her widowhood. So Judah immediately reacts and has her brought out so that she might be killed. She, he brings her out. And at this point, you just, you see Judah and you think it's so duplicitous. It's so two-faced that the man who would go in 10 days or seven days after his wife dies 
calls out another woman to kill her. I mean, it's just Judah at this point, you're just, what in the world is going on with Judah? So she, she's brought out before Judah and before the community. And this is where the text turns on its head. Every point, like kind of that point where you're like, what is going to happen? She's brought out and Judah, and so what she does is she reveals uh, Judah's signet and staff and, and cord. She shows it. She says, here it is. Judah finds out. He's not even actually here for it. He's not even here for her, for her um, killing. And so she brings it out and somebody tells Judah, is she has your stuff. And it's at this point where you go, what's Judah going to do? He is either going to figure out how to lie about it and communicate that she must have stole it from me somehow while I was in my father's, she was in, in my house, or he's going to own it. And here's what he does. Here's his response. He says to her, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. In saying this, Judah completely owns and acknowledges that Tamar has succeeded where he's failed. That Tamar has done what he should have done. That Tamar has acted righteously in the midst of his unrighteousness. She is more righteous than I since I did not give, give her to my son, Sheila. There's a, a word that we throw in this. It's, you see it a lot in the New Testament. It's repentance. Now, we actually see repentance here with uh, Judah. And at this point, you just have to acknowledge uh, God nor the author are condoning either prostitution or, or incest in this passage. Understand that. It's in the same way that with Rebecca, she tricks her husband, she undermines her husband to continue the plans of God. The same thing is happening here. That what reality is, the sadness is in how far Tamar has to go to protect the purposes of God, the lengths that she has to go to do this. Um, and Judah, just like Isaac, repents of his failure to protect God's blessing and responds rightly by not going in to Tamar again. And so scene six, this is, this is the last of the, of the chapter. This is the why. This is the why of this passage and, and the why of Tamar, Tamar's actions. Punted several times to get here, but here it is. Um, the Lord, through Judah, and ultimately as a result of Tamar's work of righteousness, provides two children that become important to the purposes of God in the lineage of Abraham. Tamar preserves the line of Judah by giving birth to twins, um, one of which proves to be incredibly important to what God does long term. And we see in Genesis 49 a promise that goes to Judah, something that Tamar knows, something that the author knows, but we haven't quite seen fully yet, and that's the kingly line is ultimately going to come out of Judah's lineage. And Tamar recognizes it, and, he, and she acts on God's behalf and on that behalf to that end. So there's a story. Uh, a couple of things for us. We're going to do some application. We'll do it on the ground, 
and we'll do it in the air, okay? We're gonna do some application on the ground. That's gonna be from the text directly, and we're gonna see something greater in Scripture. So application on the ground. Tamar, the Canaanite, presents great hope for all peoples. She presents great hope, especially for those who are outside of the kingdom of God. You would pick out a person, a Canaanite like Tamar, and you would assume as you read Genesis, you know, the fulfillment hasn't come yet. What's going to happen to her? It's probably not going to be good. But what we see with Tamar and then Ruth later on in the Bible and Rahab and Bathsheba, that the Lord has great blessing for those who might be outside of the family, outside of the kingdom of God. Tamar gives great hope. And so for you, either you were at one point outside of this kingdom outside of the blessing of God, or you're there right now. And, and the Lord might be working where you feel it, where you're thinking, I, I don't feel a love for God. I, I don't feel, and I, like I know what, what Jesus is about. I don't feel like I'm living in a way that pleases him. And this hope is for you. Tamar's hope is for you. You have to ask the question as you read through Genesis, when is God going to get to the point where he blesses the nations? And this gives us one peek into that, that, it, that it's coming, that he's doing it now, that God's heart is always for the nations. And we have this hope, this, this peek into that. The second thing, application on the ground right from the text, uh, the more time I spent here in Genesis 38, the more I grew to hate Judah. Like, I'm, I'm sitting at a coffee table, people around, my brother sitting next to me, and I'm like trying not to cry. I'm so upset at Judah. I'm so upset about what he's done, about how he's treated him. I'm just, I'm like, I'm angry, hoping my brother just doesn't see me tearing up behind my laptop screen. I'm so upset. And I realize the Lord just dropped a hammer. hammer. I'm Judah. I'm not Joseph, I'm not the hero, and I'm not Tamar who acts on God's behalf. I'm the one who is actively working against the promises and purposes of God. I'm Judah, and we need mercy. We need mercy from God that brings about repentance in our hearts. So here's the application in the air. 2,000 years later, the king, the lion of Judah, flips the script of Genesis 38. And instead of requiring the sacrifice of another, sacrifices himself for his bride. He stands before his accusers publicly and instead of giving the judgment that we deserve, he receives all of the humiliation that we own. And that's the king that we look to. And so here's what Revelation 19 says about this lion of Judah, this, this lamb that is sacrificed. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel came to John and said, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which brings us to the table. The shadow of the marriage supper. All who are presently trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right now in this moment, you are invited. You are invited to the table where we taste and experience what was meant for us, but was taken by the perfect groom who gives himself up for his bride. So let's pray. Father, we recognize that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior, that we are weak, that we have neglected your commands, that we have neglected your plans and your purposes, and we, we own that. And we repent of that. We ask that you would change our hearts. And as we come to the table, we ask that you would move grace to us, that as we think on your death, on your sacrifice, we ask that you would provide us the hope that Tamar has, that we who were all outside of your kingdom can be brought in. We trust you, Jesus, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.